This is Chapter 14 of Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc by Mark Twain. Volume 2. Book 3. Chapter 14. Joan Struggles with Her Twelve Lies. We were now in the first days of April. Joan was ill. She had fallen ill the twenty-ninth of March, the day after the close of the third trial, and was growing worse when the scene which I have just described occurred in her cell. It was just like Cochon to go there and try to get some advantage out of her weakened state. Let us note some of the particulars in the new indictment, the twelve lies. Part of the first one says Joan asserts that she has found her salvation. She never said anything of the kind. It also says she refuses to submit herself to the church. Not true. She was willing to submit all her acts to this Rouen tribunal except those done by the command of God in fulfillment of her mission, those she reserved for the judgment of God. She refused to recognize Cochon and his serfs as the church, but was willing to go before the Pope or the Council of Basel. A clause of another of the twelve says she admits having threatened with death those who would not obey her. Distinctly false. Another clause says she declares that all she has done has been done by command of God. What she really said was all that she had done well, a correction made by herself as you have already seen. Another of the twelve says she claims that she has never committed any sin. She never made any such claim. Another makes the wearing of the male dress a sin. If it was, she had high Catholic authority for committing it, that of the Archbishop of Reims and the Tribunal of Poitiers. The tenth article was resentful against her for pretending that St. Catherine and St. Marguerite spoke French and not English, and were French in their politics. The twelve were to be submitted first to the learned doctors of theology of the University of Paris for approval. They were copied out and ready by the night of April 4th. Then Marchand did another bold thing. He wrote in the margin that many of the twelve put statements in Joan's mouth which were the exact opposite of what she had said. That fact would not be considered important by the University of Paris, and would not influence its decision or stir its humanity, in case it had any, which it hadn't when acting in a political capacity, as at present. But it was a brave thing for that good Manchon to do all the same. The twelve were sent to Paris next day, April 5th. That afternoon there was a great tumult in Rouen, and excited crowds were flocking through all the chief streets, chattering and seeking for news. For a report had gone abroad that Joan of Arc was sick until death. In truth, these long seances had worn her out, and she was ill indeed. The heads of the English party were in a state of consternation for if Joan should die uncondemned by the church and go to the grave unsmirched, the pity and the love of the people would turn her wrongs and sufferings and death into a holy martyrdom, and she would be even a mightier power in France dead than she had been when alive. The Earl of Warwick and the English Cardinal Winchester hurried to the castle and sent messengers flying for physicians. Warwick was a hard man, a rude, coarse man, a man without compassion. There lay the sick girl stretched in her chains in her iron cage, not an object to move man to ungentle speech, one would think. Yet Warwick spoke right out in her hearing, and said to the physicians, "'Mind you take good care of her. The King of England has no mind to have her die a natural death. She is dear to him, for he bought her dear, and he does not want her to die, save at the stake. 
Now then, mind you cure her. The doctors asked Joan what had made her ill. She said the Bishop of Beauvais had sent her a fish, and she thought it was that. Then Jean d'Estivet burst out on her and called her names and abused her. He understood Joan to be charging the bishop with poisoning her, you see, and that was not pleasing to him, for he was one of Cochon's most loving and conscienceless slaves, and it outraged him to have Joan injure his master in the eyes of these great English chiefs, these being men who could ruin Cochon, and would promptly do it if they got the conviction that he was capable of saving Joan from the stake by poisoning her and thus cheating the English out of all the real value gainable by her purchase from the Duke of Burgundy. Joan had a high fever, and the doctors proposed to bleed her. Warwick said, "'Be careful about that. She is smart and is capable of killing herself.' He meant that to escape the stake she might undo the bandage and let herself bleed to death. But the doctors bled her anyway, and then she was better. Not for long, though. Jean d'Estivet could not hold still. He was so worried and angry about the suspicion of poisoning which Joan had hinted at. So he came back in the evening and stormed at her till he brought the fever all back again. When Warwick heard of this, he was in a fine temper, you may be sure, for here was his prey threatening to escape again, and all through the overzeal of this meddling fool. Warwick gave d'Estivet a quite admirable cursing, admirable as to strength, I mean, for it was said by persons of culture that the art of it was not good, and after that the meddler kept still. Joan remained ill more than two weeks. Then she grew better. She was still very weak, but she could bear a little persecution now without much danger to her life. It seemed to Cochon a good time to furnish it. So he called together some of his doctors of theology and went to her dungeon. Marchon and I went along to keep the record, that is, to set down what might be useful to Cochon and leave out the rest. The sight of Joan gave me a shock. Why, she was but a shadow. It was difficult for me to realize that this frail little creature, with a sad face and drooping form, was the same Joan of Arc that I had so often seen, all fire and enthusiasm, charging through a hail of death and the lightning and thunder of the guns at the head of her battalions. It wrung my heart to see her looking like this. But Cochon was not touched. He made another of those conscienceless speeches of his, all dripping with hypocrisy and guile. He told Joan that among her answers had been some which had seemed to endanger religion, and as she was ignorant and without knowledge of the scriptures, he had brought some good and wise men to instruct her, if she desired it. Said he, We are churchmen, and disposed by our good will as well as by our vocation to procure for you the salvation of your soul and your body in every way in our power, just as we would do the like for our nearest kin or for ourselves. In this we but follow the example of Holy Church, who never closes the refuge of her bosom against any that are willing to return. Joan thanked him for these sayings, and said, I seem to be in danger of death from this malady. If it be the pleasure of God that I die here, I beg that I may be heard in confession, and also receive my Saviour, and that I may be buried in consecrated ground. Cochon thought he saw his opportunity at last. This weakened body had the fear of an unblessed death before it, and the pains of hell to follow. This stubborn spirit would surrender now, so he spoke out and said, "'Then if you want the sacraments, you must do as all good Catholics do, and submit to the Church.' 
He was eager for her answer, but when it came there was no surrender in it. She still stood to her guns. She turned her head away and said wearily, "'I have nothing more to say.' Cochon's temper was stirred, and he raised his voice threateningly, and said that the more she was in danger of death, the more she ought to amend her life, and again he refused the things she begged for unless she would submit to the church. Jones said, "'If I die in this prison, I beg you to have me buried in holy ground. If you will not, I cast myself upon my Saviour.' There was some more conversation of the like sort, then Cochon demanded again, and imperiously, that she submit herself and all her deeds to the church. His threatening and storming went for nothing. That body was weak, but the spirit in it was the spirit of Joan of Arc, and out of that came the steadfast answer which these people were already so familiar with and detested so sincerely. "'Let come what may. I will neither do nor say any otherwise than I have said already in your tribunals.' Then the good theologians took turn about and worried her with reasonings and arguments and scriptures, and always they held the lure of the sacraments before her famishing soul, and tried to bribe her with them to surrender her mission to the church's judgment, that is, to their judgment, as if they were the church. But it availed nothing. I could have told them that beforehand, if they had asked me. But they never asked me anything. I was too humble a creature for their notice. Then the interview closed with a threat, a threat of fearful import, a threat calculated to make a Catholic Christian feel as if the ground were sinking from under him. The church calls upon you to submit. Disobey, and she will abandon you as if you were a pagan." Think of being abandoned by the church, that august power in whose hands is lodged the fate of the human race, whose scepter stretches beyond the furthest constellation that twinkles in the sky, whose authority is over millions that live and over the billions that wait trembling in purgatory for ransom or doom, whose smile opens the gates of heaven to you, whose frown delivers you to the fires of everlasting hell a power whose dominion overshadows and belittles the pomps and shows of a village. To be abandoned by one's king, yes, that is death, and death is much, but to be abandoned by Rome, to be abandoned by the church, ah, death is nothing to that, for that is consignment to endless life, and such a life. I could see the red waves tossing in that shoreless lake of fire. I could see the black myriads of the damned rise out of them and struggle and sink and rise again. And I knew that Joan was seeing what I saw, while she paused, musing. And I believed that she must yield now, and in truth I hoped she would, for these men were able to make the threat good and deliver her over to eternal suffering, and I knew that it was in their nature to do it. But I was foolish to think that thought and hope that hope. Joan of Arc was not made as others are made. Fidelity to principle, fidelity to truth, fidelity to her word, all these were in her bone and in her flesh. They were parts of her. She could not change. She could not cast them out. She was the very genius of fidelity. She was steadfastness incarnated. Where she had taken her stand and planted her foot, there she would abide. Hell itself could not move her from that place. Her voices had not given her permission to make the sort of submission that was required, therefore she would stand fast, she would wait, in perfect obedience, let come what might. My heart was like lead in my body when I went out from that dungeon, but she, she was serene, 
she was not troubled. She had done what she believed to be her duty, and that was sufficient. The consequences were not her affair. The last thing she said that time was full of this serenity, full of contented repose. I am a good Christian born and baptized, and a good Christian I will die. End of chapter 14